who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Welcome to the serialized audiobook Nocturnal by number one New York Times bestselling author, Scott Sigler, performed by Phil Giganti. This novel contains adult situations, violence, and is meant for mature audiences. Nocturnal is available in print, ebook, and unabridged ad-free audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash nocturnal. Chapter 51. Can't You Smell That Smell? It was four in the morning, and the Muni station was empty. The only obstacle had been a pull-down gate, which Brian had attacked with his gloved hands, bending and twisting and snapping until he and the others could slip through. From there, they'd hopped turnstiles and headed down unmoving escalators. Even Alder made good time, fast hobbling on his cane. The Muni platform spread out in front of them, a long, empty, light-colored floor with deep, blackish tracks below on either side, tracks that led into shadowy tunnels. Aggie led them off the platform and onto the tracks. Adam pointed out the third rail, told everyone it had 900 volts, 4,000 amps, and to steer clear. Brian wasn't sure if Aggie would make it. The man was literally shaking. On the drive here, Aggie had told his story of a white dungeon, of masked men, of an old shipwreck buried deep underground, and a bloated nightmare known as Mommy. With all Brian had seen and experienced in the last few days, he had no reason to doubt Aggie's story. There was no question that Aggie believed every word of it. You couldn't fake that kind of fear. This had to work. He had to find these things, find the one with the chain whips, find Pookie. They walked through the tunnel, along a narrow ledge that paralleled the rails. Flashlights played off grimy white-tiled walls and cinder-filled tracks. They didn't have long before the station opened again for morning trains. Brian led, followed by Aggie and the others. John Smith brought up the rear. Only five minutes into the tunnel, Aggie tapped Brian on the shoulder. Brian turned. Is this it? Aggie's hands shook, making his flashlight beam jitter on the white tiles. I don't know, man. I think I walked about this far. I can't really remember. You better, Brian said, and fast. Aggie looked up the tunnel, down the tunnel, 
He looked at the walls, searching for something. That scent. Had Brian imagined it? He breathed deep through his nose. There it was again. The smell that made him want to do something. Made him want to protect. He put a hand on the tile wall, then knelt on one knee. He looked left, sniffed, paused, looked right, sniffed. Stronger to the right. He stood and gently pushed Aggie behind him, then walked on. Yes, stronger. Footsteps behind him. Yo, pig, Adam said. What is it? Brian sniffed deep, kept walking. Aggie brought a baby out of here last night. I think I can smell it. The odor grew stronger as he walked. This same exact scent had made him dizzy in the hospital. Brian felt his hunter's excitement building. The smell started to fade, just a little, but he could tell it was weaker. He turned and retraced his steps. The scent again grew in intensity. When it was at its peak, he stopped. He knelt. Stronger still, the lower he got. Brian dropped to his hand and knees, bent his head and sniffed where the tiled wall met the narrow walkway. Strongest of all. He looked up at Aggie. Is this it? Maybe, Aggie said. I just don't know. Brian stood. He raised a foot. Aggie grabbed his shoulder. Wait! There's like pillars and stuff right behind there. It's booby-trapped to collapse. Be careful. Brian lowered his foot. He tapped on the tile wall with his knuckles. It sounded hollow. He reached to the right, knocked there to test the sound. Solid, like a tile wall should be. Give me some light. Flashlight beams danced, reflecting off the dirty hexagonal tiles. Brian leaned in. Right there. Was that a darker line of mortar? He drew his knife and slid the point along the line. The blade slipped through. He angled the blade down and pried. A thin black gap rewarded the effort. Shine it in here! Adam pointed his flashlight into the gap. Brian saw bits of a tunnel beyond. He slid his fingers into the gap. Everyone, look out, he said. And then he yanked. The fake wall split down the middle, shreds of plywood and bits of tile flying onto the tracks. Four flashlights played into the narrow tunnel. Inside, Brian saw a line of hodgepodge brick and masonry pillars extending off into the distance. That's it, Aggie said. Brian didn't need the confirmation, because he could smell that this was it. He leaned down until his nose touched the ground. Here. Aggie leaned in. That's where I set him down. Go in and you'll see footsteps in the dirt. Follow them real careful. Brian stood. He took a flashlight from Adam, then entered the tunnel. He played the beam across the ceiling, the walls, the floor. He saw the footsteps Aggie described. Aggie grabbed his sleeve. I did my part. Now let me go. Please don't make me go back in. Please. Brian felt bad for the man, but not that bad. Aggie could be the difference between finding Pookie alive or not finding him at all. And no matter what, someone had to pay for Robin. All the eyes.
all the teeth. You're coming with us, Brian said. He turned and looked at John. You watch Aggie. If he tries to leave, shoot him in the leg. John nodded. Sure thing. John wasn't going to shoot Aggie. Brian knew that, but hopefully Aggie didn't. Everyone, follow me, Brian said, then carefully put his left foot in the first footprint. Chapter 52 The Eagle The snake-faced man lifted Dr. Metz up high, one hand curving up under the old man's ass, the other cupped around the back of his neck. Guilty! Guilty! Pookie couldn't draw a breath. It felt like he wasn't taking in air at all. He closed his eyes again. He couldn't watch this. Rex's horizontal thumb lifted, then pointed down. Sly, execute the sentence. Metz screamed, but it was a short scream that ended with a sickening snap. The crowd roared in bloodthirsty approval, a passionate chorus that hurt Pookie's ears and shook his body. He heard and felt the masked men brushing past him to remove Metz's body, then felt them brush by again as they returned to wherever they had come from. Next criminal! Rex's every word was a hoarse-throated scream, every syllable thick with madness and psychotic lust. Him! Bring me that one! Open your eyes. Open your eyes. But Pookie could not. He just couldn't. Hands grabbed at his body. His eyes opened of their own accord as panic gripped him, pulled at his heart, and kicked his stomach. And when he looked forward, he saw only one thing. Rex Depravdichuk, pointing his way. Chapter 53 Bloodhound Brian couldn't see the smell, but it might as well have been a glowing rope hanging in the still air. There wasn't much circulation down here. What had been barely detectable in the train tunnel now filled his nose and mind. The scent called to him at a base level, made him want to kill anything that might harm the source. It was so powerful. Brian hoped he didn't find that source somewhere down here. If he did, he didn't know what he might do. After leaving the booby-trapped pillars behind, they moved faster, as fast as he could through a narrow tunnel made of dirt and broken brick, chipped concrete, bits of rusted metal and charred wood. Then, noises, faint, nothing but a whisper at first, a whisper that was lost in the sounds of Brian's movement. He stopped, made the others stand still. He listened and understood. It was the sound of a crowd tinny and thin from traveling some length down the tunnel. Aggie had said this tunnel led to the arena with the shipwreck. Brian faced the others. We're close, he said. Turn off your flashlights. Stay close to the person in front of you. Move careful, but move fast. And from this moment on, not another word. He turned off his flashlight and slid it into an inside pocket of his peacoat. One by one, the other flashlights blinked out. Darkness filled the tunnel. They weren't far away. He was going to get Marie's children from what they had done to Robin, for what they had done to Pookie. Monster, human, alien, angel or demon, whatever was down here, Brian Clouser was going to make it pay.
Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Wander with us into a world of magic. Join Jenny and Madeline in this fantastical audio drama as they journey into the stories you grew up with and reinvent fairy tales with a feminist twist. We'll see you soon in the forest of feminist fairy tales. Chapter 54 Arena Rock Brian saw light, a distant, narrow arch of illumination just a hundred feet away, shapes moving in front of that light. He kept moving forward, his steps quiet and sure. The sound of a single person talking from far away, words blurred by echoes in the crowd's murmur, until the crowd roared in unison. Guilty! Closer. Fifty feet. The shapes up ahead took form. Mounds that were people covered with blankets, sliding in front of each other as if craning to see something beyond. Brian stopped, turned. Adam was right behind him. Not so brave now. Mouth pursed, Adam was forcing himself to breathe slowly. No, not so brave, but still here, ready to fight. Was bravery really anything more than that? Behind Adam, Alder, not afraid. Maybe he'd had decades to accept his mortality. Everyone dies. You can go out swinging, or you can die shitting yourself in a hospital bed as they feed you through tubes. And in the back, John Smith. He had to be scared, but he didn't look it. Maybe six years of cowardice had taught him how to hide it. Or maybe John was just ready, because one thing was for certain. No one could call him a coward anymore. Brian stepped closer. Twenty-five feet. Ba-da-bum-bum. He stopped. He closed his eyes tight, opened them again. The smell of the baby. The thrum of his people buzzing in his chest. Those behind him were not his people. Ba-da-bum-bum. Why was he going to kill Marie's children? Why was he going to kill his brothers, his sisters, his real family? He closed his eyes. He pictured the two people who had stood by him through everything. Ba-da-bum-bum. Why was he going to kill Marie's children? Because they had taken Pookie. Because they had murdered Robin. Brian opened his eyes and again looked down the tunnel. He was only fifteen feet away, close enough to see the feet under one of the blankets. Blue feet, furry, the feet of a monster. Ba-da-bum-bum, ba-da-bum-bum. Wait a minute. Had he missed Aggie? Brian looked back and took in the faces. Adam, Alder, John, all ready to fight alongside him. But no Aggie? Brian signaled to John held up both hands in a questioning gesture. John looked confused, then understood. He quickly looked behind him, saw nothing, then turned and shrugged apologetically. Aggie had slipped away. 
It didn't matter. The man had done his job. Brian hoped he made it out alive. Five feet. So close he could reach out and grab the blue-footed person at the back of the ledge. Probably grab it so fast the ones in front wouldn't even know. That echoing voice again, coming from an unseen spot beyond. Close enough now that Brian could make out the words. Close enough now that Brian recognized the speaker. Rex. And for crimes of hating on the people, how do we find the defendant? Guilty! A new voice. Killing me won't change the fact that you're a worthless douchebag, you little shit! Brian stopped. Pookie's voice. He was still alive. Brian drew in a slow breath. Rex started shouting again, his hoarse words far louder than seemed possible from such a small person. And for the crimes of making sure we all die, how do... U-G-L-Y! Pookie yelled, his voice echoing just as much as Rex's. You ain't got no alibi! You're all fucking ugly! Stop it! Rex screamed. So loud, Brian heard the boy's vocal cords starting to fray. Stop interrupting me or I'll cut out your tongue! Brian drew his knife. He stepped forward. His hand reached out, wrapped around a furry mouth, and pulled hard. Bluefoot fell back into the tunnel. Brian had a glimpse of shocked blue eyes, felt a scream try to escape his hand. Then he slid the knife under the chin and pushed up at an angle. The creature started to kick. Brian pushed the knife in deeper and twisted it. Blue-furred eyelids stared, blinked, stared, then lost focus. Brian pulled the knife free and sheathed it. He pulled the smelly blanket from under the corpse then whipped it around his shoulders. Out in the cavern. And for crimes of... Uh, wait a minute. Oh, right, the crimes of making sure we all die. How do you find the defendant? Brian waved John and the others forward as the crowd shouted, Guilty! Brian's companions moved in close. They looked at him with shock, with fear, like he was a monster a brutal killer. He was all that and more. He stared back at them, John and Alder, their faces deep inside dark green hoods, and Adam, his black jacket collar flipped up around his neck, his skull cap pulled down to his eyebrows. Pookie is down there, Brian whispered. I'll find a way to reach him. With his blanket, I'll blend in. Maybe they won't notice me right away. I'll get as close as I can. What then? Adam said. Brian reached into his pocket and pulled out the button box Adam had given him back in the hospital parking lot. Will this work down here? Adam nodded, pulled out a small device from his own pocket. Yeah, if that cavern out there is open and you don't go into more tunnels, I'll get the signal right here. Brian held up the button box. When I press this, you guys start killing. Shoot them in the head and they'll go down. Move on to the ledge and hold this position. We don't know any other way out. Cause as much damage as you can. I'll try and use the confusion to rescue Pookie. He didn't wait for them to answer. He flipped up his peacoat collar, adjusted his mask, then pulled the blanket over his head to hide his face. 
All the eyes. All the teeth. Brian Clouser walked out onto the ledge. Chapter 55 Pookie Chang's Last Moments You have heard the arguments! Rex shouted. Now we must pass judgment! Guilty! Guilty! Pookie had always known that someday he would die. He'd always hoped it would be as an old man in bed with four women, each a quarter of his age. A quadruple chang-bang with a final orgasm into oblivion. That was how a real pimp checked out. Not like this. Rex raised his emperor's fist, thumb pointed in. The psycho kid had done this act twice already. You'd think the crowd would be over it. Hardly. They screamed and roared, waiting for the decision. A surging sense of belonging overwhelmed him. Ba-da-bum-bum, ba-da-bum-bum, ba-da-bum-bum. The ledge was four feet wide, five in some places. Chairs sat near the front edge, lawn chairs, metal chairs, cinder blocks, logs, beat-up pieces of society's discards set up as front-row seats for an execution. In every one of those chairs, standing behind them and between them, Marie's children. Brian moved to his right, along the bumpy, irregular wall. Through the packed bodies, he saw the narrow set of stone steps leading down, just like Aggie had said. No one seemed to be using it. He couldn't take that way down, lest he draw attention to himself. He kept moving right, sliding along between the wall and the spectators. Most of the monsters slash people didn't even bother to turn and look at him. And why would they? Brian felt right. Brian smelled right. Because he was one of them. He could see down into the cavern below. Nothing Aggie had said could have prepared Brian for this. It was an arena. An oblong, irregular dome big enough for a hockey rink. The floor, some thirty feet below, was lined with winding, intersecting trenches. At the back of the oblong, to Brian's right, sat a shattered shipwreck from centuries past. Down on the blood-spattered prow stood Rex Depravdachuk, dressed in a red velvet cape and wearing a crown. Monsters surrounded Rex. Brian recognized Sly from his nightmares, and the dog face from the fight at the hospital. He knew instantly that the tall one with the black fur was Firstborn. Firstborn held someone in front of him, someone in an ill-fitting sport coat. Pookie Chang, tied at the hands and feet, helpless. Brian instantly started forward, but stopped himself. He only had one shot at this, and couldn't afford to miss anything. Next to Firstborn stood a nerdy kid with a horribly distended belly, flipping a zippo. Brian didn't recognize that one. The nerdy kid moved to the side, revealing a raven-haired woman. Robin's killer. A white, broken mast rose high from the ship's center. High atop that mast, Brian saw Jebediah Erickson, crucified, hands nailed to a wooden pole atop the mast. Past the mast stood a line of posts jutting up from the deck, each with a person tied tightly to it. Zhao, her daughters, Mr. Biznass, Rich Verdi, Sean Robertson. 
three posts stood empty. Beyond the posts, there was what looked like a squashed captain's cabin. Something moved inside there, but Brian couldn't make it out. The crowd screamed for Rex's decision. The boy stood tall. He held his fist high, his thumb pointed in, parallel to the deck. Brian couldn't wait a moment more. He slid farther down the ledge, pushing past his family members and moving closer to the ship. He reached into his pocket and pulled out the button box. Pookie didn't bother struggling anymore. He'd tried. The devil himself held him in a crushing grip. Seven feet tall, the lean, muscular, black-furred creature wore combat boots and jeans, with MK-23s and sidearm holsters strapped to each thigh. Gray hairs peppered the black-furred face. Pookie couldn't move. A crazy thought. Maybe Rex would find him innocent. Maybe the thumb would point up. Rex lifted up on his toes. He looked back at Pookie and smiled a madman's smile. Rex pointed the thumb down and threw his fist toward the deck like a singer finishing off a rock crescendo. Firstborn, he said, carry out the execution. This time, Pookie would not close his eyes. Mother Mary, full of grace. A furred hand closed on the back of his neck. Firstborn pulled Pookie close. Slanted green eyes glittered with excitement for the task at hand. Deliver us from evil as I walk in the shadow of the valley, the death shadowy valley. Shit. What a time to forget the Lord's Prayer. The hand slid to the front of his neck, lifted him, started to squeeze. I don't want to die. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. John Smith's hands flexed on the reassuring bulk of his automatic shotgun. The cloak surrounded him, hid him, made him feel like a different person. Any moment now, he'd be called upon to step up, step forward and start shooting. Were all these monsters guilty? Would he be firing on individuals who had nothing to do with the crimes committed by others? Would he be killing based on nothing but race? It was too late to debate morality. Brian was out there, exposed and alone. Pookie was a captive. If John hesitated, both would surely die. John heard a barely audible buzz. He turned to look at Adam, who held up the receiver. It blinked red. Brian had hit the button. John leaned in close to Alder and Adam. Hit the head if you can, but if you rush, just shoot center mass, he said. Clear the ledge, then start chucking grenades to cause more confusion. We need to make them think there's hundreds of us, so they run instead of attacking. You guys ready? Alder and Adam nodded. John wasn't ready, wasn't even close, but the time had come. He turned and walked down the tunnel toward the ledge. Blackford hands held him aloft as if he weighed nothing more than a child. He couldn't breathe. This was the end. From off to the left, Pookie saw something small flying through the air. Had a spectator thrown a rock? It landed somewhere behind Pookie, 
clattering against the old wood. Then he heard a hiss, like a hundred sparklers going up at once. Light flared from behind him, intense light, casting his shadow forward onto the prow and the people gathered there. Mommy, the creature said, and then Pookie felt his back start to get hot. The crushing hands let go. Pookie fell to the deck, surprised at the sudden freedom. Firstborn stepped over him and ran toward the back of the boat, as did the snake face, the dog face, and the girl with the metal whips. Pookie turned to see where they were going, but had to flinch and avert his eyes from the bright light blazing near the ship's cabin. He looked back at Rex, who stood there, blinking, not moving, flickering shadows playing off his face. Echoing gunfire sounded from up on the ledge to the left of the prow. Pookie looked in that direction. Some kind of commotion up there. Muzzle flashes, people scrambling, bodies falling off the edge and plummeting to the floor below. And then, off to the ship's left, he saw something amazing. A man leaping off the cavern's ledge thirty feet above. He sailed toward the ship, rising up nearly to the ceiling before arcing down, his blanket falling away behind him. Legs bicycle kicked in the air. Arms rode forward like a long jumper's. He wore a black peacoat. Brian? Pookie locked in on the black mask, on the scrawled white death grin coming closer, closer. In midair, Brian's hands shot behind his back and came out holding pistols. Pookie had a moment to think, That's pretty fucking impressive, Home Slice. Then Brian started to tilt forward, out of control. Arms flailed and legs kicked awkwardly. Brian smashed into Rex's back, knocking the boy's body forward and driving him face-first into the wooden deck's broken planks. Brian and Rex skidded through the wood, spraying up jagged splinters and bits of board. Then they fell through the deck and vanished from sight. You have been listening to Nocturnal by Scott Sigler, performed by Phil Giganti, produced by Empty Set Entertainment. The Nocturnal audiobook was directed and engineered by Corey Young. What does feminism mean to you? During Women's History Month, come explore feminism and how it's playing out in real life with season two of Thread the Needle, a monthly podcast. I'm your host, Donna Schill. I use my background in journalism and draw on women's life experiences to add to the conversation on topics that matter to fellow feminists like you. Now in its second season, listen to new episodes each month as we explore finding yourself through divorce, battling call-out culture, questioning our ideas about masculinity, and discovering why girls' confidence plummets in their preteens. Guests include Stephanie Kuntz, historian and author of Marriage, a History, April White, author of Divorce Colony, and Loretta Ross, professor on white supremacy and call-out culture at Smith College. Listen to Thread the Needle on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.